welcome to the second in our series of winter break specials for box cutters. My name is Josh Canal, sitting directly across from me and pressing buttons, John Richards. Hello, Lister. And uh, sitting again, nowhere near this desk, because we recorded this exactly the same day that we recorded the last one. Oh, the magic's gone there, hasn't I it? Know. I know. I like to it's mention Brett that Brett Cropley is, is sitting by a fire, smoking a pipe. In a, in, a, in a lovely armchair. Oh, with the, with, with a, a, a glass of port. Oh, or, or cognac. A br- brandy in a snifter. A, a brandy snifter. Brandy in a snifter. With a, in a, in a sort of velveteen jacket with, with a typewriter near him that he's just finished his new novel on. Oh, yes, and, uh, and as we turn to him, he'll go, Hello. <laughs> I'm glad you came. And then his monocle falls out. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, take that stuffy McStuffy. Ha ha! <laughs> we got you, Cropley. <laughs> Mr. Monocle Fallout. Fallout Monocle. Hey, you know what this mm. episode is? What? What is this episode? In this episode, we revisit one of my favourite ever interviews on Box Cutters. We had Mr. Pete Smith, the voice of Channel 9. That, that is TV royalty, really, it, isn't it? It really is. I was so honoured to be sitting in the same room as him and... Uh, and talking to him and, and speaking to him about his uh, his history in television, in the entertainment industry in general, uh, but trying to get more specifically into uh, what it was like in the early days of television. He's worked uh, on the old, old Graham, Graham Kennedy IMT days uh, and also worked with people like Noel Ferrier and Stuart Wagstaff and all these uh, televi- Australian television icons that I grew up knowing. Nolan Brown, and, and so he's worked with all of them, and uh, and then could give us stories about all of them. But also, in this interview, mm-hmm. he brought in a special treat, something that Graham Kennedy made for Pete Smith and his wife. Oh, so have a listen to the interview. We'll uh, we'll come back in about thirty five forty minutes and uh, and talk a little bit about it, but. Just a fascinating man with a, a fascinating history in the industry, and uh, and you know you really could learn a thing or two. It's Mr. Pete Smith. A man whose bio reads like the history of Australian television. He's worked with Graham Kennedy. He's worked with Bert Newton. He's worked with the D Generation with Mick Malloy and, and Tony Martin. Uh, he's he's basically taken us all the way through television in Australia. Welcome to the Box Cutters Microphones, Peter Smith speaking. Thank you very much, boys. This is really uh, shaping up to be the uh, interview of the century. (laughs) (laughs) Let's hope it is. Good to see you, fellas. It it is such an honour and a pleasure to have you here. Uh, I I wanted to... There are so many things I I, want to ask you about, but firstly, uh, coming from... Television from from you know you you were in the IMT days uh, and uh, and essentially the stuff that I know of as uh, as when television in Australia really got you see kicking. some of the old DVDs do you that are luckily available now of course the old Kennedy stuff and yeah the, uh, the old live variety era you can get a feel for that I guess from those DVDs that and, are available now and also when when I was growing up Channel Nine would show uh, some best ofs and retrospectives and yeah stuff. yeah uh, and and see, seeing all of those things how would you say television has has changed and how has your role changed 
Well, I think television has changed dramatically uh, in the years since I started because it was such a novelty. Of course, people were staring at test patterns, for goodness sake, when I started. <laughs> people were, well, it was, you know, it, was, it really was a novelty. I mean, nobody had ever heard of uh, pictures coming out of a box. And so uh, if you were lucky enough to have one of the first television sets, believe you me, you would have, have it set up like a theatre in your lounge room or your dining room and you would ask selected neighbours down and it would be set up. All the chairs would be put in position and they'd come down at, uh, you know, 5.30 or 6.30 because it was only on for a few hours. They closed down, I think, about 8.30 at night. You'd come down you'd watch The Cisco Kid or Waterfront or Batman and Robin and think it was ace. And... Uh and when you got your start in television, you were doing uh, a sports hit parade show? Is that yes. Right? I, well, I was working for the ABC. I started out as a messenger boy at the ABC in, in, in the wake of people like Graham Kennedy and Keith Smith, who would only be a name to most of your listeners. But uh, Keith Smith conducted a lot of programs on the ABC, and I get con- confused. With, they get, get me mixed up with Keith, but he was a real star of the radio days. Uh, I mean, people like myself and Mike Walsh, Philip Brady, those sort of people, we all grew up wanting to be a radio announcer. Uh, there was no TV, mm-hmm. so we wanted to get into radio. You know, this was a glamorous medium, and uh, if you were a radio star back in the days before television, believe you me, your name, your photo was in the paper. That was a very big deal. You know, oh, here's a face. You could put a face to the to the voice. So people like Norman Banks and Kevin O'Gorman and uh, Norman Swain. These were the Melbourne stars in Sydney. It was Bob Dyer, Jack Davy. You may have heard of, of course, by yep. by reputation. So I got into uh, the ABC as a messenger boy and finally nagged them to the point where they put me on the air and in those days it was a very uh, austere operation it wasn't sort of so much personality and casual as it is now and so uh, it was a big deal to be on the ABC because I had my own hit parade in those days hit parade sounds pretty uh, you know old-fashioned these days because this was before the top 40 format Yes, And, I mean, radio introduced that top 40-type format and blanket cover of pop records to really counter the threat of television. They didn't know what else to do. Talkback hadn't been invented. They didn't have the the sort of technological expertise to have somebody ring in from Morty Alec or Thornbury and sound almost as though they were in the studio. They didn't have that sort of thing, so they went for pop records. But at the ABC, we had our own dance band. Can you imagine a radio station? You can't even imagine a television station with their own orchestra. I mean, sure, they come in for Dancing with the Stars or one of the variety shows, but uh, a radio station with an orchestra, a 20-piece orchestra, that's what we had at the ABC. There was the ABC Melbourne Dance Band, Mm -hmm. and they did popular music shows. And being the young guy, 17 or 18, I was given the task of doing the hit parade, and we used to cover the overseas hits with local performers. Ah, so it's a bit like the KTL, not by original artists. Well, that came, that came, absolutely. We used to. Well, you see, in those days, you didn't get the records in tandem with uh, the releases in tandem with overseas, with America and England. You didn't get them for sometimes six months. So I had a friend who was an A and R man at uh, W and G Records, which was a. Uh, a popular recording, local recording studio of the time, and he used to give me the uh, American imports. This was wonderful. These were oh, 45s wow. with the big hole in the middle. Yep. You know, it had a big spindle, yeah. not the narrow spindle like you put a bit of vinyl on now. They had the big hole in the middle, and uh, I had the hit, you know, I had Elvis Presley hits before they were even thought of in Australia. So we were able to, uh, you know, actually rearrange that, we're rain, arrange, make an arrangement locally and get somebody to sing that song. But the, the idea of uh, of the studio orchestra redoing popular songs of, of the moment, it doesn't seem that different to, uh, say, 
uh, young people in the studio singing popular songs of the of the moment. No, a la it, Idol. Absolutely, and, it's cover. It was cover versions, but this was the only way. Unless you were, you know, uh, had a radio station that had started the top forty format and were able to pay for those American imports, uh, this was the only way to get those songs on the air by uh, doing cover versions, as you say. And so, when you went from radio to television. How were you regarded in in the industry? Was was it a, a reputable move or was it a... Oh, a, yes, a, definitely a reputable move. I mean, it, uh, television was a big deal and anybody doing... I mean, where did people come from to go on television when it first started? They came from mostly from radio, mm-hmm. some from newspapers and from nowhere. That's where they came from. And bec- what, what we were doing on radio when television started, you were simply expected to do it on television too. Mm-hmm. Yep. It wasn't a big... It was a glamorous thing, but it wasn't for those of us in the industry that glamorous. I can remember a, a fellow at uh, 3DB who, at the time. Now, 3DB doesn't exist now, but it was a reputable commercial station owned by the Herald Sun. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they the brought Channel 7 on. Yep. And they were down in Dorker Street, South Melbourne. And he was a newsreader. Jeff McComas was his name. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeff's still around. And Jeff was the manager of the station and also the senior newsreader. He used to tell me that he'd be rostered to do the news at 3DB on the radio station from, say, noon until 4pm. And then his roster would read, 4pm, Dorker Street for the 6 o'clock news. And he'd walk down, get on the tram, <laughs> go down in his own suit, no suit supplied, and read the 6 o'clock news. And that's the way it was. And pretty we much, were just expected to do those things. And know? pretty much do it the way he was doing it exactly on radio, just well, in front of a camera. It was just radio with pictures. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and you've also spent your time uh, as, uh, as a news reader as well. You're a news I did a stint of news reading in, uh, in, actually in Melbourne. I did the news okay. reading in Melbourne. But uh, I did a Tonight Show in Adelaide for a while. Oh, until uh, getting those That was, oh, that's all right. That's <laughs> all just grist for the mill after all these years. It's sort of, you know. Way, way left. I've left it a long way behind. But, you know, in those days, it's interesting because in the early days of television, if you were watching a news bulletin, the newsreader really did. This is not to take anything away from my mate Pete, from Peter Hitchener and Nine News and that. But in those days, the newsreader carried most of the bulletin because there were very few moving pictures. Mm. And, mean, and no auto cue. Well, no, and no auto cue either. But where were you going to get those pictures from? Certainly they came, came in from overseas, but there was no satellite to bring them in. You know, they had to be flown in, which sort of dated the material a bit. So the newsreaders, you know, that medium close-up, shoulder, head and shoulder shot, was on there for the bulk of the 30 minutes, carrying most... So it was really a radio news bulletin. So, and, and at that time, were newsreels still, still popular? Yeah, newsreel, newsreels w- took a few years to be crushed completely off the entertainment scene. But television finally put paid to that too. But, you know, it was a big deal. When I was a kid going to the movies, now take the Melbourne Cup, for instance. There was uh, quite a few different news, uh, newsreels, mm-hmm. but one local one was the Cine Sound Review. Another was Movie Tone, the Fox Movie Tone News Australian edition done in Sydney. And uh, for an instance, on uh, uh, Melbourne Cup Day, when would you see the Melbourne Cup run? Where would you see it run? Well, there was no television. So prior to TV, you'd see it on the Thursday night after the Tuesday running of the Cup rushed 
to your local Hoyt Suburban Theatre <laughs> and they'd have about three or four prints of the cut, black and white of course, mm-hmm. and uh, they'd be raced round by motorbike round the whole Hoyt's entertainment circuit in Melbourne and in Sydney too. And so if you were lucky enough, you might see it just before they played God Save the, uh, the King or God Save the Queen or whatever <laughs> it was. So they really worked those four or five prints that they made. And, and so it was a big deal. You know, to go along and see the Melbourne Cup oh, only two days after it was run. And so then uh, how, how did that time frame translate to, to television in those days? When could you see the Melbourne Cup on television? Could you see it next day? Oh, I think so. Oh, no, I think you'd see it that night. Okay. You'd see it that night because although videotape came in in the early 60s, uh, prior to that, uh, and, and in fact after a long time after videotape came in, news uh, cameramen were still using film. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, the Cinevex company at Channel 9, for instance, a complete floor uh, below the newsroom just duping and processing black and white film for the news and for magazine programs. And, you know, sometimes there'd be something happening. It might be a fire or a, a bad smash somewhere and uh, they'd bring the film in just as they do now with videotape, except, of course, they don't even bother with videotape. They just wind up the uh, the dish and the receiver and bounce it off a building in Melbourne and down into Channel 9 in Richmond and they get the pictures that way. They don't even have to leave the location. As you, you know, you see the live eye stuff. But in those days, sometimes if it was rushed for a 6 or 6.30 bulletin, rushed back to Channel 9 physically, had to go into the processor, of course, and movie film had to be processed. And, and I don't know what, the, I'm not technically minded, but it obviously it took a certain amount of time. But, you know, very often it wouldn't be a rarity that that film would go into the projector for the news wet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wouldn't even have time to dry it. And wow. it would run through the machine wet. Now, OK, it sounds pretty crappy these days, but, uh, you know, that was, for, a, that was part of the, the romance. Yeah. That's part of the romance. And now you say, what's changed in television? Well, of course, videotape revolutionised everything, just as the video disc has as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, the tape, the fact that you could tape something, because prior to taping something, everything was, on, uh, uh, you know, just on film, black and white film, in what was called a kinescope process, mm-hmm. which was really just a camera pointing at a prism and then into, into the, uh, the cine camera and uh, locked off, but it was very inferior and nothing like you might see uh, a classic uh, black-and-white movie these days in a theatre or on your uh, DVD. It was nothing to, to, to you know, approaching that quality. It looked as though it was all grainy, even though it was brand new. And that's why so many of the radio greats <coughs> excuse me, never made it onto television because it looked so dated. Now when you see Ed Phillips doing Temptation at 7 o'clock at night, pardon the plug, but when you see that... <laughs> It's indistinguishable to live, such as the technical quality of it. Yes. But back in those days when Bob Dyer took his radio hit uh, Pick a Box onto television, and we have every copy of that. Do you know that? Every copy. Did what? I... Uh Twang something then? It's it's quite possible. It and might th- have been my moustache. That's what uh, <laughs> that, that's what separates Channel Nine from the ABC. Clearly, oh, <laughs> or the BBC was uh, Doctor Who. Yes, uh, Kinescope re- reminds me of a, a an interesting story about uh, Lucille Ball and, and Desi Arnaz uh, when uh, when they were setting up Desi Lou and they wanted to produce their show on the west coast of the US, right. and uh, and of course everything had to go live for the East Coast and then uh, was rebroadcast uh, on the West Coast because the East Coast was three hours earlier. And they did not want to move to New York, absolutely not. Uh, Mm. And because of that, they started the trend of taping 
the shows on oh, sorry of oh, filming the shows onto onto film oh okay so they would pre-record the shows onto film wouldn't have to go live the film could be uh, edited, edited and fine-tuned yeah and then oh, that's uh, interesting and then and then shown but because they they were adamant that it would not be shown in kinescope anywhere yeah that's interesting uh so anyway yeah. well i mean even today in the states now you know that's why the oscars that's why the academy awards go early in mm. Los Angeles, you know, and all that sort of thing, because they've got to get... And it's interesting, you know, with shows like David Letterman and so forth, uh, if you ever see uh, one of those shows in America, say you're in the Midwest somewhere in a little television station, that's why the band... A friend of mine went and saw the show, and in fact when Johnny Carson was on, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the band plays right... The band's there, and you think, well, why is the band there? They didn't even have a singer on tonight, but the band's there playing live right through the breaks, and they've just got a slide up. Because a lot of the little television stations in the American Midwest cannot fill the network amount of time, the four minutes that they go away for commercial breaks. So they're sitting there on a slide with the band playing live and, the, and then they know when to come back in. It's it's, uh, it, so is that time imbalance has yeah. been a problem forever, I think. Which, uh, which we never really had here in, in Australia. No, it's not. Well, I, think, I don't think it's mattered so much because, although this is not uh, an official... <laughs> A statement from a television but, executive. But your fact that like, no one cares well, about Perth. Well, you, you said it. You said it. Absolutely. You're right. You're right. We haven't had to worry. No. The, uh, now, probably one of the, the things I want to hear most about, uh, just because I wasn't around to experience these, these times, uh, IMT with Graham Kennedy in Melbourne tonight. Uh, we do see the, the Graham Kennedy DVDs, and you were you were part of the ensemble. I was a small part of the yeah. I was part of the ensemble. I mean, when I first went to Channel Nine in '64, that's 1964, <laughs> boys. Uh, there were nine full-time booth announcers. Really, nine full-time booth announcers because everything was live. Every commercial break carried live reads by mm-hmm. right. just the same as you guys are sitting here now, and with slides changing. And then slowly, when videotape came in, it started pushing those out. They started, you know, redefining them, uh, making them more sophisticated, putting them onto videotape, and that took the live element out. And so finally it got down to the stage where I was the only one left, you know. <laughs> but those nine, time, those nine full-time booth announcers, people like Jeff Cork, Hal Todd, myself, Philip Brady, Bert was even on, Bert Newton was on the uh, announcer's roster, though, his, of course, his fame was much higher than mine. Uh, but we all did our stint in the booth live. Then we'd have to rush down and maybe do a comedy sketch with Graham or a commercial, a live commercial. You know, I think the record was 14 live commercials in, in Melbourne tonight, one night. Really? And I think the record for time was when Graham did a pal dog food ad with Rover the Wonder Dog, his beautiful golden Labrador, and I think that ran... I'm, don't hold me to it. I think it was 25 and a half minutes. <laughs> but you see, those ads, especially the ones that Graham and Bert used to do, the, the cell component and the entertainment component was smudged. Yes. And there were no regulations as to how long it should be. So, of course, that's what those programs were built on. But you can imagine... Being in that sort of environment, coming across from the, you know, the uh, the confined cloisters of the ABC to five nights a week, fly by the seat of your pants, live variety, because that's what it was. Mm. Uh, it was quite something. I mean, uh, Graham was doing four nights, and the Friday night was more of a, 
theatrical uh, show. It was more of an artistic in Melbourne tonight, and it was compared by a guy called Noel Ferrier. In his very mm. large wicker chair. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, you boys, you've done your research. <laughs> and I can see that wicker chair still today. I think it's still down there. Mary Hardy, of course, was in that, and Freddie Parslow. And these were theatricals. These were really legitimate performers. Because, as I said, when television started, we came, people came from everywhere, but very few were professionals. And that's why we learnt so much from the likes of people like Johnny Ladd, who was the uh, comedy producer for Graham Kennedy for so many years, and uh, Freddie Parsons, who uh, uh, was a lovely man who uh, had a s- terrible stuttering problem. But he was the dearest man, and he was Roy Reen Moe's chief comedy writer at the Tivoli. Right. And Graham, when the Tivoli era finished and television killed all that live variety era out of those uh, venues like the Plaza Northcote here in Melbourne and Theatre Royal in Sydney and all the major capitals had their own big theatre, you know, vaudeville houses where variety played out. Uh, well, uh, Graham got uh, Freddie Parsons to come over and he can, and a lot of those sketches that you may see now on DVD and stuff and in retrospectives are really old uh, TIV, show, TIV comedy sketches. Because Converted, you know. Did, what was the... Uh, was there an arrangement between the Tivoli and, and Channel 9? Because Channel 9 also had the Tivoli dancers. Well, uh, no, we had our own dancers. Uh, I mean, I mentioned nine full-time booth announcers. There were 300 people working on in Melbourne tonight. Can you imagine that? 300 <laughs> people working on one show, and most of those people were on the staff. Not, not casual. They were on the staff. There was another 20-piece orchestra there, full-time orchestra. There were 12 ballet dancers Dancers, boys and girls, on the staff. <laughs> there were eight vocalists, chorus. Sorry, that's me with my chin on the <laughs> microphone. But uh, yeah, can you imagine that? I mean, that was. I mean, I was too young for the Tivoli era. I mean, I remember, I saw Roy Reen at the Tiv. It's one of my everlasting memories. And I must have been, I don't know, eleven or twelve when my mum and dad took me along. I used to go to the pantomimes because the uh, the evening stars used to in school holidays used to do the pantomimes in the daytime. And then they do the adult show at night with the nudes and everything, you know. Oh, that's my most enduring memory. <laughs> and your, you know, your your audience would think, oh, the silly old cow, you know, the dinosaur. But you know, can you imagine no television variety going along to the Tivoli and seeing these wonderful comedians, you know, Jim Gerald and George Wallace and Roy Reen, marvelous. And then you know the variety, the dancers, as you say, the Tivoli dancers, wonderful. And then there would be the famous Tivoli nudes. And, I mean, that was an... Ex- Can you imagine a kid of 11 or 12 his first outing in the evening and being taken out at night to see a big adult show at the Tivoli? And here were these beautiful alabaster bodies graced along the proscenium arch. The, the ballet dancing all around, but by law, the nudes had to remain completely stock still. Did you know that? That was no. by legislation, yes. They were allowed to appear nude, but they had to remain completely stock still while the ballet danced around. It was only in later years that the nudes were allowed to move, but the audience had to sit stock still. (laughs) Memories, memories. So, hang on, I I, I do want to get this back to television. Yes, I'm sorry. Look, I have But I've been uh, distracted by nudes. (laughs) (laughs) So, completely nude, not pasties? Oh, I think they probably had something on down below, but God, for a boy of 12, you know know what I mean? It's... It was wonderful. As you wonderful. told me to imagine it, and that's just what well, I've been doing. That's <laughs> the only thing. I, I don't have much of a memory, but that memory sticks in my mind. <laughs> wonderful. So, sorry, Pete, you were, you were about to say, uh, I, I don't know, you raised your hand and went, well... Oh, I, did I? Oh, no, I didn't mean to. No, uh, I just I raised no. my hand a lot. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think you started with, I've got. 
have you got? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. We we're just when you talk about Kennedy, and it brings it all back to me. And, and you know, uh, at the moment, they've done this movie on yes. Graham. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know what sort of a job they've made of it. But, uh, you know, from what I've heard from people who've seen bits and pieces of it, they've done a good job. I mean, where do you start and where do you finish? If it was done in America, I suppose they do a real hatchet job. But my memories of Graham are uh, very happy memories, you know, uh, just fun memories because... Uh, if anybody could make you laugh, Graham and Bert too could make you laugh just from nothing, you know, just sitting here with you. And and I, and I, and I was looking through some old, throwing out some old cassettes. Remember cassettes? <laughs> Audio, domestic cassettes, as they call them, <laughs> audio cassettes. And I came across this one, GK's World, uh, GK's World of Comedy. And I put it on and I thought, I said, what's all this? And it happened to be, you know, Graham had a reputation in his later years when he moved up to Sydney and did the movies, the Don's parties and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And he did Coast to Coast for Channel 9, which mm-hmm. was a news show, uh, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, he sort of started to get a bit, quite a bit reclusive. I mean, Graham always liked his own company. And you can imagine, you know, the people who look into this until their dying day, I suppose, when you talk about Graham Kennedy. But can you imagine a 17-year-old turntable operator thrust to stardom on radio with Nicky on 3UZ as it was mm. then up in Burke Street, and then going on to television and becoming an instant star, uh, can you just imagine the defence mechanism? You'd put that barrier... Everybody who'd come up want to know you. Everybody who'd want to be your best friend. And I think Graham put this barrier up and it just became bigger and bigger and bigger, mm-hmm. you know? Because in those days, believe you me, even a little supporting player like me, if you were on there for 10 seconds, everybody would know about it the next day because it was a novelty. People were watching. I'm not saying we were doing anything classic, but it was a fact that this thing was brand new. I mean, when's the next revolution going to come in? I mean, I suppose podcasts, but uh, it's sort of only an extension of something that's been before. But television... Anyone who listens to this show knows that there's there's no revolution. (laughs) And it's nothing with that kind of focus. I I don't think that there's there's the capacity for the population to focus like that. Yeah, Mm. so, you know, without making an excuse for the way Graham was, you know, he did like his own company and he did become very reclusive and uh, in the end, uh, friends of mine who were kept in much more constant touch than I were just sending faxes and Graham would send a fax back mm-hmm. and even for some of his movie roles he'd just write on it nil interest and send it back and he had a stamp made nil interest <laughs> he did and he'd just put it back in the machine and fax it back to them and you might think well this it's bloody rude but this was graham but and that's why to my delight when he moved up to sydney and finally you know settled into the farm he had a little disc jockey set up made for him i don't know who did it but some friend must have done it up for him so he could play his records because he loved musical comedy and stuff you know he really saw himself as a musical comedy man and you know taking another uh, another direction he could have been a musical comedy star i reckon he always wanted to do how to succeed in business without really trying and if you see robert morse in that film version mm. of the stage show you can see that graham could easily have settled into a role like that. Uh, but uh, imagine my surprise, and I'm looking through these tapes, and I, you know, because, as I say, you didn't get a phone call from Graham every other day or even a letter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, imagine I go through these tapes and I hear this.
And now, here's me for Pete and Jackie. Jingo, it's easier to play radio stations at home these days, I can tell you. So anyway, it goes on from there and into a lot of personal stuff and that, but this is the sort of thing he'd do for you, you know, and he knew <laughs> I loved themes and things, so that's the old theme, G but you swell, which Graham heard on a Jack Parr show when he went to America once and loved it and it became the theme for In Melbourne Tonight over a certain period. And so he just sat in his uh, home studio and, and, and made radio shows for you? No, well, he did it <laughs> on that occasion. I don't think he sat there all the time doing that. He might have done <laughs> it for other people, but imagine my pleasant surprise yeah. when from out of nowhere I find this thing I, that I was just going to chuck out. Yeah. And here's Graham talking to my wife and I, you know, and mm. uh, you know, it just brought it all back to me. Yeah. Because, you see, so many... And, you know, there are quite a few of us still around, even though we're getting worn and torn. There are quite a few of us still around who are on those shows. There's Bert doing, you know, Family Feud at Channel 9, and I do his warm-ups, and while he's there, believe you me, the spirit of what Graham and Bert and a lot of them put on in those days is still very much alive and well at Channel 9. Well, speaking of that spirit, uh, how do you, uh, with all those memories, how do you respond to the rumours that they're thinking of selling selling up Bendigo Street, Channel 9? I mean, I, that must I, be, that I, must be I think sad. those rumours have been going for... I, just, I think they're just rumours that have been okay. going for... And, and, you know, that could come to pass. Who knows? I mean, uh, everything, uh, everything is in a state of change. We've been there a long, long time. And, you know, there's something about change. There is. It, it would be a, a big uh, disappointment if yeah, it were sold. Loss. But uh, the thing is that they're in the uh, business of making entertainment and television programmes and fantasy, and you can really do it from anywhere if you've got the right material. Look at uh, One Versus Hundred. You know, it's being done, done out of the Docklands because it's so huge. Mm-hmm. That's set because that's what's called for. So we go there and we do that. Mm-hmm. A lot of the reality programs now, obviously, you're not going to do them in the studio. You go to where people are. Mm. And so it changes. But I must say, people who come to Channel 9, whether they come to work or whether they come just to visit, do sense something that you just can't put your finger on. Uh, a lot of people that I worked with on those shows, and I said there's still a few around, still alive and kicking, who've been away from 9 for a long time, uh, I'm very privileged because I still walk down the ramp in that old soup factory, that old piano factory as it was, converted to a soup factory and then into a television station. I still walk down that ramp past Studio One where we used to do our comedy rehearsals in the afternoon with Graham. That's the first thing that kicked off the show each day. And uh, for me, uh, it's never gone away. I could have walked down there this afternoon. I could walk down there tomorrow and walk in and just pick up the script and go through a new comedy sketch or <laughs> revamp one and uh, so it's been a rare privilege for me now, to, talking, uh, uh, to never have been away talking mm. about uh, the comedy rehearsals uh, is it true that uh, everything that uh, Graham Kennedy did was really tightly scripted including the ad libs oh no I don't think so I don't know where I read that somewhere or somebody said it somewhere but I don't believe that for a moment I mean we used to uh, certainly re- rehearse the comedy sketches, because, of course, cameras, uh, the director had to get cameras in Mm. position and didn't want to miss sight gags and things that happened in the comedy sketch. Mm -hmm. So obviously we had to rehearse it. But what was done in a four-minute script or four- or five-minute script at 3.30 in the afternoon, 
Do you think that had any semblance whatsoever <laughs> with what went on at 20 past 10 at night? Nothing to do with it. And that was the most scary thing of all because Graham was completely in control and we were all there, you know, even if you were just dressed as a Roman centurion and had to open a castle door at the right moment. Don't open it on the laugh. You know, just wait. You know, you had to, and you, and is he going to change it? You just don't know. And so this was, oh, it was nerve wracking. Young enough then, and I could take it. And so, so when you uh, when you see live television now, uh, Rove Live and uh, and other shows, and you you're part of uh, the Degeneration Live shows uh, as well on uh, on the ABC. Do you think uh, Do you think they live up to that? Uh, that standard that was set by IMT? I do, because uh, the people you mentioned, uh, whether it's Rove or uh, Mick Malloy and Tony Martin and all those guys, uh, they grew up watching some of that stuff and loving it. For some reason, they just did, and it stuck. Whether they looked at it, whether they were told to go to bed or whatever it was and look through at that flickering picture through a crack in the door when they were supposed to be in bed, whatever it was, it's something stuck with them. And that's why they uh, occasionally, uh, you know, use a silly old bugger like me, <laughs> I guess. Pete, I, I would love to have you sit here and tell us stories of... of te- because we, we've, we've still only gotten up to 1960. <laughs> yeah, well, I've, ra- I've railroaded you a bit, you know, but I, yeah, cause I, I brought a lot of preparation in here, you know. I mean, the first five TV commercials, it's, I spotted this the other day. I couldn't believe it. What would you say would be one of the first five commercial... Uh, commercials on television in Australia when it all began? Soap. Soap? You know, that's a good answer, but it wasn't one of the first five. I'll no, tell you what the first ve- five ve- are. I'll tell you what the first... Veg- Vegemites, that is another excellent answer, and it would have been there somewhere along the line, like aeroplane jelly and stuff, mm-hmm. but it wasn't one of the first five. Do you want to know what the five were? And this Please. is Richie Ditch. The first one was Rothman's King Size Cigarettes. The second one was Pepsi Cola. They had the jump on Coke at that time. Really? Coke's yeah. another one that's been very, very prominent. Take that, Ross. <laughs> Pepsi, more Australian than Coke. Doesn't make it taste Get onto better. this one Golden Cob Canary Seed. <laughs> Golden Cob Canary Seed. I don't think it's any longer in existence. Right, that, that I ad- certainly don't have it on my muesli. I can tell you. <laughs> that ad clearly didn't work for you. Well, uh, maybe not. But I mean, this is going back, you know, a long way. This is going back to 56, 57 when it started in Sydney at TCN. I know, but Pete, if, if I don't remember it, then nobody <laughs> What about audiophone hearing aids? They lasted well, didn't they? Yes. <laughs> and Vincent's powders and tablets. I think they might still be there. You know, did was, you ever remember? You would be like too Bex? young. Or? Yeah, like a Bex. Take a Bex and a cup of tea and a good lie good down line. and all that stuff. Yeah, no, Vincent's powders and tablets. You opened the little pack up and stuck your tongue on the powder. Well, <laughs> I think they're doing that round the corner today, aren't they? <laughs> Good on you guys. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah. Thanks well, we, we so need, much. We need uh, Ed Phillips here to uh, to give you the thinking music before we ask if you if you'll come back sometime. Love to. We, Love to come back. In fact, uh, we've we've had uh, Ed on the show a, a couple of times via the telephone. I think it'd be amazing to have both Ed and Pete here, <laughs> and uh, and finally they can square off and we'll see uh, you know which one comes out alive. Oh, well, Ed's another one that, uh, as young as he is, appreciates uh, like you guys. Obviously, uh, you know, even though you weren't part of that era, it's terrific that you have an appreciation for what that's all about. Because really, we were just there to make people laugh, to give them a bit of entertainment, to show them a bit of fantasy, and really, the shows that are working today 
do just that, whether they're live or on tape. Mm. Well, Pete, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming in and talking to us. It's uh, Pleasure, it's, guys. It's fantastic. Box cutters, keep on keeping on. <laughs> Pete Smith speaking. So I thought that was lovely. I mean, he, he brought in this CD that uh, uh, Graham Kennedy had made for him and his wife. And Graham, I, I think Pete says in the interview, uh, just loved... I mean, he came from radio and loved uh, radio so much. He had his own radio studio set up for him in his house where he would just make these CDs for people. And... Uh, you know, when, when Graham Kennedy died, and it was so sad and so tragic for uh, for our television nation, uh, and and then all these things came out. And the last few years of Graham Kennedy's life was so so sad. Any reports that we had from him, I, I think, after he had the fall, uh, and to think that uh, what we know about him as being this private person, uh, but then still really wanting to be in touch with his friends mm-hmm. any way he, he could. I think that's a lovely way to, to remember him. It's funny how Greg Kennedy, I remember uh, famously he would only do interviews by fax, I think it was, towards the end. Like you had he, to fax him. Yeah, he did a lot of things only by fax. He would, he would only uh, relate to people by fax. And, and it's kind of funny how he was only a few years short of, like he would have loved the internet age. Like, you know, Graham Kennedy was born for the internet age in oh, which yeah. he could have you know, had the connection but kept everyone, you know. Yeah, imagine him on Twitter. Mm-hmm. That man could probably get out in 140 characters more gags than anyone else in the world. And uh, it would be fantastic. Uh, imagine him on Smacker, Ross. Do you think Ross, McQueen, do you think Graham Kennedy would have liked Smacker? Oh, we should have mentioned too, shouldn't we, that uh, Ross, oh, McQueen Ross McQueen was just on, that not was me. Vo- yeah. yeah, not me. That was the voice of Ross McQueen. Yeah. We assumed that you had listened last week. Yeah, basically I, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, only in, in the current uh, epoch Yes. Those, uh, box cutters, not not in the golden age of box cutters, which we were just listening to. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's interesting that in the golden age of box cutters, as you refer to it, which also means that what now we're in like the, <laughs> we're either in the platinum age, yeah, yeah. or bronze, or I bronze, decided, or the industrial age of. Uh, <laughs> I think of we're in the industrial yeah, age of box cutters. That's, that's nice. what I, I like. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. Uh, is we also did the golden age of television, which uh, I, I highly recommend going back and. Uh, and listening to, if you want to get a really good idea of, of the things that we were loving between 1996 and 2006, uh, there are some uh, some exceptional things there. But Pete Smith, uh, at the end of the interview, we say that we ne- we need to get him back because I think we only got up to the 1970s uh, in in his career, and there's so much more since then that we still need to talk about, uh, especially all, all his work with the Late Show and all of his work with the. Uh, South Century, and we also we, we wanted to record that uh, ident so he can say, "I'm here with those sexy, hunky, gorgeous men." Yes, yes. Ah, oh, that would just be wonderful. <laughs> that would be absolutely wonderful. So that brings us to the end of Box Cutters special winter episode series two episode of it. Two point zero. Next week Box we cutters. will be back with with actual more liveish us. Sure, there'll be uh, there'll be some TV news. Uh, there'll there'll be a, a review. A review. That guest that didn't show up three weeks ago. Who knows? Maybe he'll turn up. <laughs> Maybe. Have you heard? Have you heard? No. That? No. no right. Nothing. Right. Nothing. Right. Nothing. Nothing at all. Nothing. Okay. You know what? You don't write. You don't call. <laughs> is it that? Is it that hard to pick up a phone? Yeah. Is it? Might have some new guests. That'd be even better. Oh, 
It'd be wonderful. I'm, I'm excited. I can't wait until next week, especially oh. considering it's two weeks away. Also, um, I, we've been receiving suggestions on TV shows to review from, from you, lovely box cutter listener. Uh, thank you very much for that. And please uh, do keep giving us suggestions about what shows you might like us to review. Yeah, I, I, I love that. Uh, I'm, I'm, still, uh, uh, I'm still trying to uh, look up some of the shows that, uh, that you'd mentioned. Plus, I've recently found episodes of It's Your Move one of my favourite sitcoms from the 80s, nobody remembers, but it was a really early Jason Bateman one. And uh, just before coming in here, actually, I saw a, a clip of it and, and went, oh my God, I remember Jason Bateman in this show being like a, a grown-up teenager mm-hmm. because he was five years older than me at the time. Right, yes. Jason Bateman is still five years older than me. But I must have been like eight Seven or eight, which yep. only makes him twelve or thirteen. Yeah, but at the time, that's a big difference. It seemed like such a huge difference. So now, look at it, it's such a little baby. No, it's you're both unspeakably old. Oh, I know, but he has a career. I want to say thanks very much to Joy ninety four point nine for allowing us to record this bit in their studios, while Triple R FM let us record the other bit. So we thank them for the other bit. Sure, why not? Let's thank everybody. Yeah, and thanks to Ross McQueen, and of course, thanks to Pete Smith. And uh, thanks to Brett Cropley as well, who pressed the buttons and uh, and organised everything. And who we love. He's just not here right now. He's just not here right now because we couldn't work out the times. Don't read anything into it. Nothing, nothing to read into it. (laughs) (laughs) Shut up! (laughs) Until next week, my name is Josh Canal. I'm John Richards. And hey, let's be careful out there. Box Cutters thanks 3RRR, whose studios we use to record this podcast pretty much each and every week. Find them on the web at rrr.org.au or 102.7 FM if you're in the Melbourne metro area. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go onto the iTunes Music Store or anywhere else you find us and leave a review. It will help other people find Box Cutters and then they can enjoy it too. Email us at hooray at boxcutters.net or via SMS on 0458 288 837. That's 0458 Cutter.